Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Hey everyone, it's Lindsay Rhodes and I've got a new podcast, the NFL Road Show. Fun and kind of nerdy conversation about the NFL every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. I've got some amazing guests that are joining me. I'll be breaking the huddle with the top stories, previewing games. We'll get you set for the weekend fantasy with our Fantasy Friday episodes, and we'll answer some of your questions as well. So subscribe to the NFL Roadshow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Here's Where It Went Wrong, the show where every episode we sit down with one of our favorite comedians, discuss one of their favorite subjects, and trace the history to find out where it all went off the rails. I am joined, as always, with my co-host, Wen Powers. Wen, how you doing? Andrew, I'm doing... Okay, there's a few answers to this question, okay? Of course. I just had my first, like, week-long vacation all year because I'm working from home, and I was just like, I don't have to take days off. I'm working from home. Every day is a vacation when you're doing that. And it turns out I hold a lot of tension in my neck because I like (laughs) was just so hunched over all the time. And I finally, my wife was just like, we're taking a week. I took that week. I was so relaxed. All I did was grill and do nothing and just hung out. And then I finally get home. I open up my laptop day to start working. And then my phone rings and it's my mom being like, Hey, just so you know, a lot of people are getting COVID. <laughs> it's like, oh, thanks, great. I all that t- I immediately hunched back over. It was like, fuck. This was a socially distanced vacation, by the way. He went to a cabin in the woods. Yeah, I went to a cabin in the woods. Oh, I was fine. Right. No, just alerting our audience that we are all being responsible here. And this is going to be coming out after Christmas, but this is uh, December 14th right now. So we're all all gearing up for <laughs> the modified Christmas. Modified Christmas. It's going to go great. How are you, Andrew? How are you doing? I'm doing good. I got a tree this weekend. Uh, Wen looks very surprised by it. He knows I'm Jewish. <laughs> um. <laughs> no, I, was, I wasn't I was surprised. I was just mostly just being like, when can I hop in and and actually say the ha- say happy uh, this is the, what, fourth night of Hanukkah? It's the fifth tonight, fifth. Ah, but fifth. you are so close. Yeah, thank you very much. We, we've been doing the candles. We got the tree, too, because apparently they don't check at all. They don't. Yeah. <laughs> So it's been really nice. And we are, are joined now by uh, our, our good friend, Michael. Thank you very much for being here. Uh, you know, we've, you've heard him here a number of times, and he's the, one of the writers for Anti-Social Skills, a great game, uh, which will be coming out very soon. Has it come out already, or is it coming out soon still? It's been out, man. It's been out. Well, I mean, I played it, but I got that exclusive release. I didn't know everyone else could play it. All the normies got it by now, yeah. No, it's a great game. It's fantastic, yeah. Anti-Social Skills really fun definitely check that out and uh we are so happy to welcome our special guest who we are such huge fan of you might know him from stella wet hot american summer another period his multiple comedy albums there's many books latest which is a better man a mostly serious letter to my son michael ian black thank you so much for coming on hello gentlemen thank you for having me it is absolutely thank you so our much pleasure. for doing this it's great to have you look i i'm just thrilled to be asked to be a part of this i'm thrilled to hear the story about grilling i mean every every detail yeah. of that is riveting i'm, I'm so glad to hear it i can't <laughs> wait to tell him. i'm gonna run upstairs after this recording it's like guess who loves our grilling story it's all we're gonna talk about <laughs> when and i talked about doing a new opening for the show i said what if we do an opening where we uh you know we, we kind of tease that what the episode is going to be about and we both said okay but not for michael ian black we want to go with the classic that we know here we tell stories and we got that grilling story in. That was the right call. I'm glad we went with that. <laughs> to be fair, though, the last time I saw Michael Ian Black here in Chicago, he uh, had like a 15-minute joke about getting a Subway sandwich with his son, and it was riveting. So you can make anything interesting. 
But the, what really made Wen's story so powerful was just the concision of it. You know, it really had everything. He went on vacation and he mostly grilled. What else do you <laughs> need from a story? I mean, that just, it, it was, yeah, it was powerful and funny and bittersweet and heartrending. And it really had everything that I want. You're so very thank welcome. You. I'm actually selling the story of this vacation to HBO Max. So it's good to have that. <laughs> <laughs> It's good to have that stamp of approval. <laughs> well, I'm I'm glad we were all uh, uh, amused by this. And Wen actually does look far more relaxed. Uh, so I'm really glad you got that break. And now we've got this episode that uh, is a pop culture one, which means you actually know something about it and I don't. So what are we talking about today? Today we are talking about bands we love, which I know is super loose. But you know what? It's what we're doing today, guys. So I hope you're ready to listen to just bands we like, and I hope you agree with all of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and of course, as always, we've got the point where it was ruined, but we're not going to get to that for a while. And uh, because I know nothing about this, I got into some music history. And uh, as always, the goal of this show is to give you the history you don't know about the subjects you do. And I thought uh, we were all vaguely familiar with music history. You know, we've heard enough throughout the year. So I tried to find something unique, which means we're going to start in the year 33,000 BCE. I'm sure music was before that. <laughs> it, it, it was before that, but we're going to Hohlfell's Cave in Germany, where the oldest surviving musical instrument was found. There are things suspected to be drums, but they're basically rocks. We have here a five-hold flute made from a vulture wing bone, which is just about the most metal thing I can imagine. So we're going to skip ahead, you know, roughly 30,000 years to the oldest surviving. Don't worry, we're still way. But I, I wrote when before this and I said, do you mind if I just go like way too far back? <laughs> I was like, no, go, go, go nuts, go with it. So we have the oldest surviving written music, which dates to approximately 1400 BCE in Syria. They're known as the Hurrian songs, uh, but there's one nearly complete tablet, uh, which contains the Hurrian hymn to Nikal, goddess of the orchards of uh, Ugarit and Canaan, which is written in Ugaritic cuneiform. And it was actually very cool, both the writing itself, it, it's nearly complete, and the interpretations. And I heard it and I was so ready to be mocking this, but it was surprisingly beautiful. Like, it was amazing that you could see the number of connections between music. I mean, it's not like you're going to go to a club and be like, oh, yeah, this is my jam. But it was very cool. Uh, and although also there have been like five different interpretations of because obviously they don't know how to translate this. They were completely different. I mean, everyone covers it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like Bob Dylan. Everyone, everyone has at least one cut where they're doing the Syrian first piece of music ever written. It's just what you do. I mean, honestly, I do expect this to start being sampled at some point. I feel like this would be a very cool piece. But here it is. The, the Hurry and Hymn number six was is named as. also looked into what this was played on because obviously I didn't record it but this was most likely played on a Babylonian lyre or possibly the, the nine string samum but more likely the lyre so at this point the lyres have been around for over a thousand years as the oldest stringed instrument the earliest examples being found in ancient Mesopotamia from around 3000 2500 BCE variations on this and the harp dominate for a while but there's an emergence of new designs of stringed and bowed instruments around the medieval era the Arabic uh, rabab which basically is two strings I mean one overlaps, which too, is uh, one of the earliest records of a fiddle, a string instrument played with a bow appearing as early as the 8th century CE, which was such a unique, I mean, everything before this was plucked. So I had to find out how this happened, that they suddenly realized, oh, we can use a bow on this. So this seems like string bow instruments seem to have developed from the nomadic horse riding cultures uh, in Central Asia. Because of this positioning, it spread quickly through Islam in the East. So by the year 1000, it had almost simultaneously reached China, Java, North Africa, and Europe. And horse riding culture was ideal for this because it had both a basis in bowed warriors 
and obviously in excess of horsehair, which was what was used in musical bows as well. Combine that with the rosin necessary for creating the clear sound when applied to horsehair, which was already used mixed with beesback to treat archery bows. So this was most likely kind of an accidental discovery of that mounted archers are cleaning their bows and realizing the sound that's coming from this. And this develops to these bowed string instruments that not long after began to kind of dominate. I will say I was always under the impression that the fiddle was actually invented by the <laughs> devil and it was originally made of gold. So this is very informative. Popular misconception as well as the fact that Nero played one since it was not invented until after his death. Flea would have slapped on those things, you know? <laughs> Flea would have just gone to town. So we're moving ahead to the 16th century Italy where the violin appears. Uh, 17th century gives us Antonio Stradivari, produced 1,116 instruments, 960 violins, 650 instruments survives, and we have still not been able to recreate violins as, as well as he did, which is absolutely amazing. And then we have Bartolome del Cristofori di Francesco, who he was recruited by Prince Ferdinand de' Medici. Love Prince. I love <laughs> Prince. So good. God, too yeah. soon. Too soon. <laughs> so of those Medicis, yes. There is some circumstantial evidence that suggests he was recruited as caretaker of his instruments and also as an inventor, where he would go on to create the piano, which was absolutely groundbreaking. It was revolutionary because it allowed musicians to control the dynamics of the sound based on how hard a key was pressed, which is where the name came from, pianoforte, shortened to piano, because it used a hammer to strike the strings rather than being plucked. This was absolutely groundbreaking and it helped usher in the classical music era, which brought us the very first rock star, Franz Liszt. Mid-19th century, Franz Liszt was playing salons and concert halls across Europe for what is normally polite high society, but women would literally attack him. They would tear bits of his clothing off, fight over broken piano strings uh, or locks of his hair. Europe had never seen anything like it. The uh, German poet Heinrich Hein called it Listomania, which again was a, a movie in the 60s named after that. I will say, I want to make the show about the first rock star where like it's like the great or something, but it's all about this guy just like rocking out on classical music. It's like Marie Antoinette and just follow that guy. Cause that sounds cool as hell. Actually. I love this. It absolutely was. And I mean, there were stories of women throwing their clothes on stage in a period where women couldn't be seen without clothes. And also where it took a long time to get undressed. <laughs> <laughs> they had to love the music so fucking yeah. much. <laughs> you have to start undressing at the beginning of the show and just trust it's going to be good enough to earn it at the end. Oh my God. Could you imagine the people who have to be like, Oh, he's playing the new stuff. Put it back on, put it, yeah. put it back on. <laughs> Can you tie my corset back up, please? <laughs> <laughs> no, but Liz was this dynamic personality. It was unseen before because uh, he wasn't just a musician. He was a performer. He was the one that invented the person walking out from the wings to the piano. He was also the one that positioned the piano so the audience could see his face. He didn't invent. Don't say he invented walking out from the wings onto the stage. That's Before that, curtains would open with them seated at the piano. He was the first major performer to walk out from the wings to then sit down to the cheers of the audience. Next, you're going to tell me he invented the Tommy Lee 360 drum machine. <laughs> like, you're just being like, oh, yeah, this one guy invented the piano, which I guess somebody had to invent the piano. But it's insane that we have a name for the guy. But now you're just like, yeah, he invented walking onto the stage. And it's like, it's weird that the piano came before walking onto the stage. This is a different guy. It's a later guy who invented the walking to the piano. And that guy was the guy. The guy who invented the piano was pissed that that guy got credit for it. The guy who invented the piano was literally strapped to the piano. <laughs> he didn't have the opportunity. It was like one of those one man band situations. <laughs> if the audience is confused here, there was obviously walking before the piano existed. Well, yeah, no, walking existed, but people were building pianos around them before you could walk to it. It's just, you had to burrow to the piano before. But incorporating this into the performance, appearing from the wings rather than being seated, was groundbreaking. He also was the first one to let the audience see his face uh, rather than see the keys. And he had this dynamic performance with, you know, tossing his head back, his hair and sweat fleeing to the audience. And it was, of course, incredibly improper. It was also considered at this time that someone couldn't tour just by playing piano alone. You were you could tour with an orchestra. This wasn't considered impressive enough. And Franz obviously didn't like that. So he insisted on just doing this. It was also considered improper to not have your music in front of you. 
So he insisted on never playing with his music in front of him. He was this rebellious rock star of, you know, the mid uh, 19th century, or, or sorry, it was it was really the late 18th century. He's only doing this for about 30 years when he quits. He wants to leave on top. <laughs> you say only 30 years, like that isn't a, that isn't a great career. <laughs> he quits when he is about 30 years old. Oh, okay. There we go. Yes. He, he leaves surprisingly early. So the Backstreet Boys lasted longer than Franz Liszt. <laughs> I mean, basically, but everything we recognize about the modern piano recital, even through Elton John, Liszt did it first. Even the name recital was Franz Liszt. I thought you were going to say even the name Elton John, Franz Liszt did first. <laughs> <laughs> he did everything. But he began conducting after that. He refined that role as well. Uh, he he was started working with individual musicians to help shape the sound he was after. For that, conductor would really just facilitate the performance. Uh, he, they kept people together or beat the time. But after Liszt, conductor became someone who shaped the orchestra and their music. And of course, he'd also compose around 1,400 works. And despite the music being classical, this was what we recognized as the rock star in terms of performance, in terms of audience reaction, this was the first major celebrity in music, the way musicians are celebrated today. Well, we don't know what they thought of that guy who played that Syrian instrument. They might have gone nuts <laughs> for that. They might have been sacrificing people to that guy. We don't know. That's a very good point. They were going nuts for this shit. Everyone loves music. No one hates music. Have you ever met somebody that was like, I'm not a music guy? That's insane. I actually did meet someone like that, and he was exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> My dad says he's not a movies guy, and it's one of those things that every time he says it, I'm just like, what does that even mean? <laughs> like, you don't like being entertained for two hours at a time? Maybe he just prefers still photographs. You know, it's a lot of motion in motion pictures. Well, that that's the thing. The one movie he goes to bat for is The Sound of Music, so I know he's a music guy. And there's a lot of movement in a musical, but I don't know. I don't know what it is. Not a movies guy. <laughs> He's a dad. So World War II is right yeah. there. So now I'm okay. Now I'm on board. I get it. Well, I think that should bring us to the modern era then as well as musicals. This is obviously a musical theater is when specialty. But yeah, let's skip ahead to some of the stuff. This is our basic his music history. I feel like after this is the kind of the stuff you guys are probably familiar with. So let's go ahead to the actual positive of music here, which is again, the area where I'm, I'm assuming I have bad taste in music just in my general personality. So let's hear from you guys <laughs> who actually know something about this. How about some favorite bands? Well, to me, the subject here isn't even so much what bands I like, although there are some bands that I like and some bands that I liked at one point it didn't like later. It's about what bands uh, sort of overstayed their welcome. And so while I enjoy, let's say early REM and mid REM. I'm not like breaking out whatever their, I couldn't even tell you what their last album was. I may like Public Enemy, but I'm not like craving the new Flava Flav, you know? So yeah, there's a lot of bands I like. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> I think that does bring us into uh, why th this episode worked well, because it was a combination of the actual good and where it went wrong were kind of one thing. The good were these bands that we absolutely loved, but the where it went wrong was they just stuck around too long. And this happens so often. I get it. It's hard to leave, but there are so many examples of this. 2020 has already reshaped how we work and it's almost over. Businesses across the globe are challenged to be their most efficient, which means every hire is critical. Indeed is here to help. Indeed is the number one job site in the world with more total visits than any other job site, according to Comscore. Indeed helps you find quality candidates quickly so you can focus on hiring the person you need to keep your business going. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need. You can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. And now, Indeed's new way of matching you with candidates instantly delivers a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job criteria that you can contact the moment you sponsor a job, making Indeed the only job site that can move as fast as you do. 73% of online job seekers in the U.S. visiting Indeed each month according to Comscore, total visits. So it's clear Indeed can help you get the quality hire you need. And that's why more than 3 million businesses worldwide use Indeed for hiring. 
Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job posts, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer valid through December 31st. Terms and conditions apply. The wait is finally over. Football is back. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Bet BetOnline is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, BetOnline gives you more options to wager than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, division, and championship futures all day, every day. Head to BetOnline today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Don't forget to use promo code BLUEWIRE at BetOnline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. <laughs> I think that does bring us into uh, why th- this episode worked well, because it was a combination of the actual good and where it went wrong were kind of one thing. The good were these bands that we absolutely loved, but the where it went wrong was they just stuck around too long. And this happens so often. And I get it. It's hard to leave, but there are so many examples of this. Yeah, there's so many examples of bands that end up with just like one founding member who has a license to the name from a court battle 30 years ago and is 72 years old and he's still out there playing clubs with guys a third of his age that weren't even alive when half their music came out. And there's too many examples of that too. It's like at that point, it's just a cover band with one of the guys hanging out. Like it's just, it's not the same thing anymore. And unless that's like a one man band, like, you know, Nine Inch Nails, you know, for 99.9% of those bands, it's kind of like, I don't know, try something else. Like, are you that afraid to go out on your own? You need that band name to make your money. You really do. Like you had, you've had such a great career and here you are, playing music 50 years later, you know, there's so many examples of that. Like UFO does that, Hawkwind does that, ELO kind of does that. They're one of the bands that kind of in a, a mini genre of bands that turn into two bands because they can't get along or can't get over like licensing of the name. So there's like ELO and then ELO featuring Jeff Lynn and then ELO featuring some guys from the 80s. And, you know, there's there's versions of that too. And that kind of gets old as well. Queensryche does that. There's way too many bands that just, I don't know, at some point you just got to start new, right? So you're not suggesting they leave, though. You're suggesting that they re- that they form a new band. Because, I mean, I can't imagine thinking like, oh, I love doing this. I'm going to stop. Uh, so you think instead it's about creating a new sound, a new band. All the other me- members are new anyway in many of these cases. So you think it's about creating a brand new form. I think so. I think some of the guys just kind of hang on too long. It's you know, Some of it's probably to pay the bills and some of it's because it's all they know to do and they feel like they're only recognized by their band name. But there's a lot of guys out there that, a lot of bands out there that I think the, if the, the one guy left did his own thing, I think people would still go out to see them in the same amount or, or more. And bands that are split off into two versions of the same thing, that's just, that's even worse than that. It drives me nuts. Uh, Fuel did that for a while. Do you remember Fuel from the 90s? They did that. Yeah, Queensryche, I mentioned. Great White did that. Who cares about Great White? They're doing that right now. Like, I don't know. At some point, you- So you're saying, you're saying I can see two different versions of Great White? Yes. <laughs> I'm all in. It is amazing. Yes. They sometimes do uh, double bills. They double headline together sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, if you loved that, you're going to love our next band. <laughs> There's a lot of iterations of that you know the stupid shit with the court battles of like one guy has the name and the other guys they hate that guy so they won't play with him but they're gonna still use the same band name just they legally can't use exactly that name so they just add their own personal names to the band name and then you can go see them and it's just it gets confusing for the fans on top of it all like i thought it was a mistake when they started calling themselves whites are great <laughs> I, thought, I, like, I understood the marketing i understood they had the copyright problem but i just feel like the phrasing was poor they could have changed things around. They definitely should have changed things around. I will say, to your point, Michael, of bands that have done that and they'll they'll split off or they'll they'll change and they'll 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 just keep the name. One of my favorite discoveries in high school was Mud Crutch. And if you don't know Mud Crutch, they are Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, but with like one member changed out. The member is not Tom Petty either. I should I should reinforce. It's not like they were just like, Tom Petty's not here, but we're going to tour as Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, which I feel a lot of bands would do uh, of the ones you mentioned. It would just be the Heartbreakers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the Mud Crutch was, they had one, like one or two people swapped out, but it was Tom Petty still on there. And it wasn't them just carrying over the name. If you listen to those two Mud Crutch albums, they are some of the best work that Tom Petty 
and the Heartbreakers ever put out. Uh, so I will say I do like your what you're saying about switching up the switching up the name, switching up the sound. Because for that band, it was fantastic. I absolutely love Mudcrutch, guys. I'm not being paid by Mudcrutch. You're getting paid every time you say Mudcrutch, though. Oh, for sure. Oh, I just want people <laughs> to walk away and only know the name Mudcrutch is all that's sticking in their heads, and the greatest whites. At least one person is going to mix up Mudcrutch and Mudvane, and I'm going to feel bad for that person. I always think it's a bummer when uh, there's a band that has great success when they're very young, and their youth is mentioned in their name, like the Beach Boys. Mike Love's 88. Mike Love (laughs) is a vampire at this point. (laughs) New Kids on the Block recognized that they had this problem, tried to change their name to NKOTB, and I think went back to New Kids. But, you know, they're my age. They're men who are getting colonoscopies. <laughs> Joey McIntyre has an enlarged prostate, probably. And Backstreet Boys, who we mentioned before, same thing. They're still, they're still doing it. They got a 50-year-old member now, I think. I'm sure. I think Kevin's 50. Backstreet Boys, they just had a new single come out with Britney Spears, just like, just like two days ago. Really? Yeah. Wow. They're they're still doing it. They're still kicking. But there's something about bands that I feel like out overstay their welcome more readily than solo artists. And it might be because solo artists have the opportunity to kind of reinvent themselves more readily and easily than a band. Because a band, when they come out, they're generally such a specific product of their times as a group. And it's hard for a band to kind of reinvent itself to adapt. You know who did that the best? I'm just thinking of this now. The Bee Gees, who had a great career in the 60s, were already popular, and then then totally reinvented themselves and became a disco act in the 70s and still had a great career. And then I feel like into the 80s, they were still doing really well. And then they started to die, which is the best thing that can happen to a band, is people start to die. I mean, I actually completely agree with that. My two would Sometimes, be, my, they're a little bit sorry, more, go, a little bit more two. obscure. No, please, One hit me Genesis, with your two. I would say that they reinvented themselves completely after Peter Gabriel left. They were a lot less, uh, a little uh, little out there. They were a little bit more out there with Peter Gabriel in the 70s. When he left, it became a whole new thing with Phil Collins. And uh, they kind of took over kind of 80s rock and pop that, with uh, with their albums. And uh, the other one's a little bit more obscure. It's an English band called Marillion. They're huge in the UK, but here they're not quite as big. But they had a similar situation where their initial... Uh, lead singer fish left in 1987 i think and they hired a new guy to place replace him and he has been the singer ever since and they're two completely different bands they're also kind of like genesis where they were a lot more progressive alt rock with fish and then when they hired the new guy in the late 80s uh they became a much different band and they've been hated for it ever since but they kind of had to reinvent themselves they didn't want to you know find a guy to to replace the first guy who was just going to be, you know, a, a, a carbon copy of him. You know, some bands try to do that, and I think it always looks transparent and kind of stale. So I always appreciate when a band can do that. It's just so rare to. Uh, Journey is is a good example of a band that couldn't quite do it. And uh, right, who's that? Who's the other? Oh, maybe it is Journey. The guy, the the band that found the singer in like the Philippines. Yeah, that's Journey. That's Journey. Okay, yeah. Yeah. And it's weird. I mean, because now, like you said, they're Journey, but they are the cover band of Journey because Steve Perry isn't there. Even though it's all the other original members, like all Mm -hmm. of them are there except for Steve Perry, but it feels like a cover band. Like it's just some guys just have a presence and Steve Perry was generational. Like you just they got a guy that is that is also extremely talented in his own right and sounds a lot like Steve Perry, but. He just isn't Steve Perry. And I think there's cases like that where there's just irreplaceable guys. And at that point, I wish they would have gone by something else. And Queen is doing that too. Queen is another perfect example. At least in Queen's case, they didn't make Adam Lambert an official member. It's Queen with Adam Lambert. But I think Queen's one of the best examples of, come on, guys, just it's your bassist isn't even there. It's not only Freddie's not there, but your bassist also isn't there. I'm blanking on the name, but Roger Taylor and Brian May are the only guys there. And they're just playing the old stuff. And it's like, come on, just do something different we all want to see roger taylor and brian may but even trying to do the role that freddie did is just he's not replacing him and we all know that but i, I think just trying to even walk on the same stage as freddie i just don't think is is a fit like if anybody was going to do it i'm glad adam lambert is but i think that's another case where i wish brian and, and roger had tried something new so one of my favorite concerts of all time me and my wife were visiting our in-laws and uh they have this like little venue in memphis uh like this little garden kind of venue uh where concerts happen and it's kind of like where bands go like that are a little bit on their last legs right and i saw boston with my father-in-law there and brad delp is 
dead, and I cannot stress this enough, he is no longer with us. But they got a guy that sounds exactly, exactly like Brad Delp. If you close your eyes, you are thinking you're listening to a Boston album. However, this man had no stage presence (laughs) at all. But he was hitting all the notes perfectly. So I am cackling the entire time because he is standing there, hands in his pockets, looking straight forward and hitting these insane notes while his eyes are either going straight forward in the back above everyone's heads or to the floor looking at his feet. And I'm just howling because it's the most amazing singing I've ever heard but he could not be bothered to try to interact with the crowd or like feed off the band's energy it's like the most insane karaoke act I've ever seen is it possible he was just lip syncing (laughs) it could be but like why would you have him do it if anyone because he's an incredible lip syncer (laughs) (laughs) it's it's just more more than a feeling comes on, which is just like the song everyone was just ready to hear. It was more than a feeling. He's hitting every single note. And when it comes to the solos, he takes out the tambourine. He attempted to hit it off beat for like a few <laughs> seconds, realized he wasn't cutting it, dropped it on the ground, and walked off stage till the solos were done, <laughs> and then came back at the end. And I am just like, everyone's looked like, my family is looking at me. My in-laws are just kind of like glancing at me. Like, is he okay? (laughs) Where I'm just like tears streaming down my face, crying, laughing, because it is the funny, like to have someone be that good and not care (laughs) one bit what they're doing at all. While all these other people around me are going insane for it. Like there's lasers, like there's full on (laughs) light shows and stuff happening behind him. And he cannot be bothered to partake in the experience at all. Other than I'm going to sing my song. I'm going to get off stage. And it was the best concert of my life. So he didn't leave because he was embarrassed that he couldn't play or something. He just left because he's like, oh, I'm not performing now. I guess I can leave off. I can wait in the wings until it's my time again. (laughs) I don't know if he's sending a tape and they're like, he's perfect. Like, like, like this sounds exactly like Delp. This is insane. And then when they showed up, they just got this guy who just keeps his hands in his pockets the entire time, other than an offbeat tambourine <laughs> for a few seconds before giving up. It was the best. That brings up a really good conversational point, though, is that if you are going to replace, a, uh, you know, an original singer of a band like a Steve Perry or a Brad Delp, is it more important to have the voice of the guy or the charisma of the guy? It seems like we need more of the charisma. We don't need a, a replacement singer to have to sound like uh, to sound like the first guy, like Van Halen. Perfect example. They got a completely different guy with Sammy Hagar than they had with David Lee Roth. So they didn't even try to replace David Lee Roth. They just got a new great singer. And with a new great singer, they had a whole new era. They had a whole new other decade of success. And, you know, that projected them into, into legendary status. So I think that the worst thing that a band can do in often cases is to replace a guy with, with someone who sounds just like him. Great. He's got an amazing voice. But if he's not... Uh, you know, if he's not attaching to the crowd that is supporting this band all these years, then what's the point? Right. Well, then it feels like a, a cheap ripoff instead. It does. Exactly. Then it feels like a cover band. Well, don't forget the amazing third era they had with Gary Chacone. Oh, Gary Sharon. Yeah. Van Halen 3. Who could forget? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Gary Sharon. Yeah. We could barely remember Gary Sharon. He had that and he had Extreme for like uh, six months. And then that was basically it. But yeah, I mean, at least they try to go a third round again with getting a way different guy than Roth and Hagar, but it just didn't work. But at least I applaud Van Halen for trying something new again. Well, Van Halen was oddly in a position where even though David Lee Roth was a huge star and front man, Eddie Van Halen was equally the star of that band so it they they had an easier time i think of it than maybe other bands would who who totally relied on the front man well acdc same thing they didn't try to replace bon scott they got brian johnson who has a quirky voice in his own but he doesn't sound anything like bon scott and didn't act anything like bon scott brian has half the energy that bon scott did on stage but again they projected into another 40 years of success i think there's there are cases where if you just go a whole new direction it would be like we're not going to replace bon we're not going to replace david we're just getting somebody else who kicks ass i feel like that's the way to go Well, I feel like the big the big divide is, are we going to record new music? And if the answer is no, 
the idea is, well, we're going to tour with somebody who sounds like the record because people are showing up just because they want to listen to what they have in their car. You know, if you're making new music, then you get a new guy who has a new flavor, a new stage presence and all that stuff because you're going to create something else out of it. But if you get... If you're just in like the the touring and doing the garden while this idiot over here cackles his <laughs> ass off, you're just going to do a sound alike, and that's the best you can do. But I feel like Christmas still has to be a part of that because in your case, you were laughing your ass off at the guy who had the beautiful voice but had no stage presence. So you can't just phone it in with the voice, you know. I feel like that's not enough. They might have thought that I was crying because of the beauty of the voice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think something really interesting that Michael Lee and Black had mentioned when he pitched this idea was that part of what makes us fall in love with bands to begin with is the mystique around it. My mother was actually at the Beatles' first uh, live show in America on the Ed Sullivan show. She was at the Ed Sullivan appearance? She was, yeah. That was like 50,000 people asked for tickets, 700 got them. She was one of them because my grandfather knew a guy at the hotel that it was recording in. <laughs> but one of the things that she mentioned afterwards was when her friends asked her about it, because, you know, she's a teenager at this point. What she mentioned to them wasn't the performance. It was that she saw them in the pool and their hair was slicked back and she got to see the Beatles' foreheads, which nobody had seen at that point. Acne everywhere was awful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But that was it. She got this peek behind the curtain. And that was what was so amazing to tell all her friends was that she got to see beyond the mystique of the Beatles. She saw the Beatles foreheads. I mean, that's a brag. <laughs> it is. But I think it also brings up the issue with the ones that go on too long, because suddenly it's like, OK, cool. You were this towering figure because we didn't know anything about you. And now we know stuff about you. <laughs> I think the Beatles, you know, the, the obvious comparison with the Beatles is the Rolling Stones. And the Beatles had the good fortune to break up and then start dying, whereas the Rolling Stones <laughs> have continued rolling and gathering so much moss in the process that it's just not interesting or compelling. It's just, you know, it's different than a band who loses members and replaces members. The Rolling Stones are basically intact. You know, it's been the same lineup for 30-something years at this point, and they turn out new material that nobody particularly cares about, and they keep playing stadiums, and they keep doing the same thing, and it's not compelling. It's not particularly interesting. It's a nostalgia act, and it does, to me, feel like they've overstayed their welcome because what are they even doing it for? It's not money. So what is it? And what is it that makes people want to experience that other than just at this point the strangeness of seeing 80 80 year old Mick Jagger prancing around on the stage I think you can age gracefully in rock music and we've seen some examples of that but there's something sort of ridiculous about the Rolling Stones in particular I think um, with the exception of what's his face the drummer Charlie Watts who is just perfect and he's a jazz drummer too if you watch how he plays he plays like a jazz drummer not a rock drummer he doesn't bang the drums he plays like a jazz musician it's beautiful yeah he's very he's very elegant and always has been and maybe that's why like of all the Rolling Stones like he's the one that I can look at and go like yeah you're 80 and you're still doing great um, but the other guys, it's a little absurd. They are pretty, still pretty good performers, though. But to your point, uh, I actually read Keith Richards' autobiography several years ago, and he had a lot of beef with Mick that he wanted to air out in the book, of course. One of it that I thought that really stuck with me was the idea that Mick Jagger in recent years has been taking dancing lessons. And Keith Richards is like, what the fuck are you doing? You're Mick Jagger. Whatever you do is a dance. Like, just... It's you. You're a, you're a literal icon. You're learning from people half your age how to, how to do what you've done <laughs> for half a century. What's wrong with you? And he goes on this tangent about it, and he's got a good point. It's like, is that part of overstaying? You've been there so long that you feel like you need to not do what got you there in the first place? Like, are you that unsure of yourself after that long? Well, there is the idea of mystique around bands in particular. Bands create a mystique. And so when they first sort of emerge... There's this excitement of this new thing, this new sound, this new look, this new moment. And it's very hard, I think, for bands to sustain that and have it be relevant and interesting. And I guess, you know, with the Rolling Stones, what, what they ended up just creating was spectacle. And they can just keep doing spectacle. But it's not compelling. I mean, to me, it's not compelling. I'm sure they are great performers. I'm sure, you know, they, they still put on a good show. 
but there's no mystique anymore. Like, we just know these people so well. There's no danger. There's no danger to seeing the Rolling Stones. This is your granddad's favorite band. <laughs> no, they're not fighting authority. What's Keith going to do? He's not going to break a guitar. Mick's not going to jump in the crowd. You know, we're not going to do anything. He might break a hip. <laughs> I mean, at a certain point, that band is now an unofficial time Yes. To see who's going to come out alive at the end to get all the royalties. It's a nostalgia act, just like Aerosmith. They got a Vegas residency. That's like the most Aerosmith thing they can do. They're five 70-year-old men that are basically have the same fans of the last... I mean, they probably haven't gotten a whole lot of new fans since the 90s. And, you know, they're kind of where they kind of belong, sort of, because Vegas is kind of an older people kind of draw. And they bet they did great with her during their residency. That's kind of where they should be. Like, there is a case to be made for nostalgia acts, but I feel like you should know what you're getting into when you go see them. To me, if you take the residency in Las Vegas, you're admitting it. You're conceding defeat. <laughs> yeah. You're saying, yeah, you're like, okay, yeah, we're just going to be here. We're going to hang out. We're going to make a shitload of money. And nope, we're just going to hang out. We're, we'll see you at the buffet, guys, and it'll be great. I got to say, it doesn't sound like an awful gig. I, I'd sell out for that in a second. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, Andrew, have I told the story about my Kiss concert experience in Las Vegas on this podcast before? No, you haven't. Okay. Please do. And I've got a question for you after this. Okay, so Kiss is in their Las Vegas period when they're not saying that this is the final last goodbye tour. We're not doing another goodbye tour. We <laughs> promise it this time, guys. We're serious. We're not doing another tour. So this is their seventh one of those. <laughs> and once again, my father-in-law is just like, come on, let's go. Let's go to Vegas. And it's all he wants to do is go to Vegas and see this concert. He buys the tickets. He's just like, please, y'all just come out here and come with us. And my wife is all on board. So we go out, we go to Vegas, uh, and we stay in a room with them and they get tickets to the concert. My wife actually does up my father-in-law's face in full kiss makeup. He is a <laughs> fan. All right. Which, which face though? Obviously Gene, of course it's going to be Gene. So has his whole face done up. We go to this concert and I'm not a big kiss guy. I'm the guy who shows up at a kiss concert. And I'm like, Play Beth. That, that's, that's just who I am. It was Peter Chris even there to do it though. Yeah, he was. Okay, that's part of the that's part of the mystique loss with Kiss. Not to interrupt your story for too long. I apologize, but a quick point I want to make is that there are bands that also lose a lot of mystique by hiring and firing the same guys over and over again. Like, how many times have Ace Fraley and Peter Chris had to be fired by G and Van Paul? Like seventeen times. Like. What the fuck? Like, make a legit contract already. What's wrong with you guys? <laughs> but Paul comes out there and he's like, are you guys ready for a night you'll never forget? And everyone goes crazy. And I'm like, as long as they play Beth. <laughs> and so the concert starts. And it's like, it's a spectacle. It is, it is clearly... To me, this is only a, a spectacle and kind of fun to be like, oh, these guys are super old, but they're acting like they're not because like they're like going up on platforms. There's flame shooting out. At one point, Gene takes out a flaming sword and throws it and like, fine, it's cool. These people in front of us are going hard the entire concert and they're drinking these buckets of giant, you know, fruit punch margaritas the entire night, just chugging these things. And so the concert ends and you know, ends quotation marks. They're about to come out for the encore that everyone knows they're going to do. No one leaves the venue. That's what encores are now. They're just like, you have to wait five minutes to right. get it. You know, it's not like, you know, we were gonna, we were on the bus when we heard you guys yelling and we decided to do two more. It's, it's just like, okay, the encore's coming now. Turn down the lights. We know they're not done. Half the time, they don't even turn on the lights. They're just like, <laughs> just sit in your seats for a little bit. I digress. The concert ends, and the people in front of us, like, look around, and they rush out. So I'm like, okay, they must be trying to beat traffic out of here. And I stop focusing because they come out and they play Beth, and I'm like, this is what I'm here for. <laughs> so they're playing Beth, and all of a sudden, uh, the ushers come, and they start doing their flashlights right in these people's seats. And like, just realize that these people rushed out because they poured out their entire bucket margaritas of fruit punch everywhere. <laughs> so I'm like, that's weird. But then like a bunch of other ushers come out and they start spraying bleach everywhere. And they start taking up the seats and they start bringing out mops. And my father-in-law and my wife have not noticed this. So I just like kind of just go, hey, what's going on? And they say, somehow that man cut himself real bad. <laughs> that was blood. And right when they said that was blood, confetti <laughs> shot into the air and started surrounding me as the sounds of I want to rock and roll all night 
parentheses and party every day start blasting from all of the speakers and i just watch confetti fall into a pool of blood and you know what's funny about real blood it looks so much like fake blood it's insane (laughs) paul stanley started that concert by saying it was a night i'd never forget and by god he was right well Kiss are obviously so well known for their performance as well. But one of the things I wanted to ask you about, because your background was in musical theater, as we've discussed a number of times here. Yes. <laughs> I don't feel like we see the same thing, though, with either the the plays or the stars. Nobody's going like, oh, we have to see Bernadette Peters again. I hope she does the classic stuff. That's not true. <laughs> really? Are people tired of Bernadette Peters? People aren't tired of Bernadette Peters at all. But here's I think there's a difference to it when you're a performer who is known for playing roles. There's a fun aspect to it because like they're not going out there. No one expects her to come out there and be doing Mrs. Lovett like in an actual show unless it's a charity event. People like seeing people reprise roles that they've done before. That's that's fun. Uh, You know, you'll get some people who are doing Fiddler until like it's gone, you know, but it's the show. People are there for the show. And if the star is in it that, you know, and love. Like that's a big that's a big deal. I feel like, but that that's just me. Yeah, the star usually of of the shows is usually the show itself. It's rare that 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 a, that a that a star gets so closely associated with a show that the show itself is in danger if the star leaves. I mean, I feel like if the star leaves, there's almost like if the show crashes after the star leaves, it wasn't a great show to begin yeah, with. I think that's usually the case. But is there an issue of seeing this beloved star from one show appearing in another one and people going like, oh, this isn't really what I wanted to see Patty Lupone in? No. No, I mean, I would think that that's, uh, maybe I phrased it backwards originally, but that, that's what I thought was that these stars seem to be beloved forever. <laughs> in musical theater, yeah. But they age into new roles. Yeah. yeah. They're not going out there and doing the same stuff from the other show you saw 20 years ago, <laughs> unless they're doing a cabaret kind of thing. They've they've aged and they're doing new things. So you're seeing Patti Lapone do this. You're not seeing her. So it really ties you know. back to what we talked about in the beginning about those that branch off and create a brand new band seem to do well. The same way when you see these stars in the new role, you're just excited to see them. But also we've got Phantom has run for like, what, 30 years now? And nobody's tired of Phantom. <laughs> Andrew Lloyd Webber's the star of that show. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Are there other bands that you think uh, lost their mystique or should have broken up a long time ago, Michael? Uh, you too, I feel like. And and it's not like I dislike you too, particularly I don't, and they keep making new music okay, but there's nothing compelling anymore about you too. And in fact, the mystique has so evaporated that we think of Bono primarily now as an activist and not as a rock and roller. Um, it, it's... Yeah, and and I don't have a problem with I don't even have a problem with being commercial. I mean, they've been wildly successful since the '80s, but it 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 just feels like whatever it was when they first emerged and became super successful, that sound, that like distinct edge sound, and Bono's distinct voice, and they had a kind of um, outsiders uh, sort of global perspective. Like th- there was something great about them and, and you know, kind of new wavy, um, vaguely punky. And then it just got to be tiresome. Yeah, I agree. There's not a band in the world that had a better start to their career than you two. Like with I Will Follow and War and Joshua Tree and Octung Baby, like best for first four albums of, I mean, that's comp- that's comparable to any band. I don't think anybody had a better first four albums than, than you two. But then after that, they did Zeropa. And then after a while, they, they couldn't count to four in Spanish. And then they were added to your iPhones. I feel like they just <laughs> talk about losing your mystique, man. You can't even count by the, at that point. And now you're being forced to people's phones. Like how rock and roll is that? Bono made Spider-Man turn off yeah. the dark. Right. Wait, was that Bono's? Right. Not a good not a good sign. It was Bono in the Edge. I had no idea. We had someone pitch that for an episode and like, okay, we have to do it, but I haven't done my research on it yet. I had no idea. All right, well that I mean that sells me on that. Yeah, after Octang, <laughs> they should have been like, you know what? We're 30, we're done. But they they couldn't. Yeah, exactly, right? And Julie Taymor, can you do some Lion King stuff with Spider-Man? <laughs> it just it does not work. At one point they put in a bunch of narrators that they called the Geek Chorus, and I'm just like, I'm a nerd and I'm a musical <laughs> theater major, and somehow you have just wiped out all of uh-huh. my interest in this. Uh, Michael Ian Black, what's your favorite concert that you've been to? I feel like I've told like three concert stories. Well, I don't know that I have any particularly 
great stories around my favorite concerts, but uh, Fugazi in, at Maxwell's in Hoboken, it was, yeah, probably on the tail end of their prime. So basically, they're still their prime, but they were still pretty fresh. The Sugar Cubes at CBGB's, uh, that was Bjork's band, was one of my favorite concerts, uh, mostly because I was about three feet away from Bjork and was just like utterly enamored. <laughs> How could you not? It's Bjork. Those are, the, those are the two that come to mind immediately. Psychedelic Furs when I was in high school, the Ramones. Although they even when I when I saw the Ramones, it would they were they I think they had kind of worn out their welcome too. But it was novel for me, you know, because the Ramones was like a kind of live fast, die young kind of band that didn't die young. I mean, they did die young. Most of them did die pretty young. But they felt like they should have existed for about two years and then disappeared forever. And they would have been legendary. They're still legendary. They just had such a, they were just so specific and of a moment. And the moment passed and they didn't. But there's bands that I feel like did, I I feel like there's a couple bands that I can think of that I feel like did stay great throughout. That actually does bring us to our next section of the show. In their defense, we said everything about these other bands that we feel like have worn out their welcome, but now let's move on to bands that we feel uh, had a resurgence or or they never lost their edge. Uh, Michael, please hit us. There's two that I can think of off the top of my head. One band that I don't even like and one band that I love. The band that I love, who I feel like were sort of perfect from start to finish, was the Beastie Boys. Like they started out as sort of bratty teenagers with an attitude and they were kind of funny and they were kind of hip and they never took themselves too seriously. And they stayed that way for the next 25 years or however long it was. Their albums were always great from start to finish. They reinvented themselves at times, but it always felt like they were perfectly themselves. And even though we kind of knew them really well, I felt like the mystique never quite went away. Like the Beastie Boys always felt like a really tight package and brands that never sold out, that never, even though they were successful commercially, they never got like corporate and gross. They were just kind of perfect, like a perfect little gem of a band. Uh, and then one of them died and that was it. And it was, that's the way you want to go. And they didn't, they haven't stuck, they haven't tried to do it as a duo like they, like the Beastie Boys were done. And I feel like they had the perfect ending. Yeah, they didn't pull an American Idol star in to be like, you're the third Beastie Boy. <laughs> that oh, would be an Jesus. amazing move. <laughs> it would be kind of hilarious. Clay Aiken. Beastie Boys featuring Bo Vice. <laughs> it's the Beastie Boys and one person from TikTok. <laughs> God. And then the other band that I don't even like particularly, but I feel like they were just, they, I feel like they did it perfectly was the Grateful Dead. Like they came out with a thing. They stayed true to that thing. They got super successful at it, but it was still that thing. And even though like it might've felt sort of weird and alienating to people who weren't of that generation, they still managed to bring people along. They still managed to be inclusive. I don't feel like they ever got any hokier than they ever were. You know, like they were always the same level of kind of, hokey and and whatever that thing was um and they aged gracefully and then you know jerry died and then that was kind of it, it was perfect and then they had other bands though they did other stuff they were they were dead in company they did the thing with john mayer but they didn't call it the grateful goddamn dead like they did something right. else <laughs> yeah i mean i do like the dead i do like the the music i do like the dead as as a period of where they were of where they're touring and also I think there's something because we were talking about musical theater earlier. And I do feel like there's some kind of fun aspect to what they've been doing of just like, we're the dead. We play the grateful dead music that you love, but then we bring in a big star that just loves our music. Kind of like when you have like someone who's like one night only, you know, so-and-so as phantom and phantom of the opera. They're just like, you're seeing the dead and here's John Mayer coming in. Who's, who just loves the Grateful Dead and he wants to play those tunes and he wants to be there and having a great time. And I feel like it it's a little shot in the arm of just like, oh yeah, this is this is just a pure love of the music rather than we're just going to play the songs on the record the way you, you hear them and just do that forever. Well, part of what makes that work is that John, you know that John Mayer doesn't need it. You know what I mean? 
Like for Adam Lambert, it's sort of like, this is an amazing gig and opportunity for Adam Lambert. For John Mayer, it's like, you know that he doesn't need it. He's just out there and you can celebrate with him because he's clearly doing it for the right reasons. Exactly. I feel like John Mayer is one of those artists that gets a lot of shit. But like, if you are, if you're, I was in a cover band for like eight years and that John Mayer is one of those people that like, for one, Gravity is a fantastic album. But two, musically, he's just insanely good at guitar. Of course you want him in a Grateful Dead and company kind of situation because he's just so great and can jam in situations like that. So I feel like that's definitely a fun shot in the arm kind of thing when it comes to the He's got a song called Cover in Rain where he does just like a five-minute solo that he impromptus every time, and it's really impressive. But what amazes me as well about the dead, and I don't like the dead either. My wife loves them. I can't stand them. But what I do, what does impress me about the dead is that for being a band from like the hippie era, you know, the Woodstock era, and continuing on until the 90s, like a lot of their... Uh, a lot of their, uh, you know, the people from that era ended up being nostalgia acts for, for the, the most part. I think Santana reinvented himself really well, but really outside of that, the rest of them were kind of in their time. And what amazed me about the dead was that they kept accruing fans. Like you didn't go see the dead for nostalgia reasons. Like maybe that was one reason, but you went to go see the dead because the dead was just your way of life. Like the dead was, was just your subculture. Like it, it, they really, they just kept accruing and just getting bigger and bigger while also staying the same. And, there's, I mean, I, I don't know another band that did that at their level. That That's true. I was going to interject and like be like, my band that hasn't lost its fun is Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. I feel like that is one that just, if you see them now, they're still fun as hell. Yeah, he's the number one guy I need to see after coronavirus. He's the first act that's I have the, to see. That's the best concert I've ever been to in my life. But also, like, they still put out music. Letter to You just came out. And I will say, it's a good album. And it's, uh, it's, Interesting, because I know Bruce is the headliner, but it's still a work that they all put in together. It's not a solo Bruce Springsteen album. It is a Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band album, and it is definitely an evolution, and it's good. Solo artists, I mean, solo artists can go into different phases of their career. I find it interesting that they are a band that kind of keep their ethos, but still experiment with different types of music and have different kind of approaches in their later works. I mean, Magic is a very different album than Letter to You, which is a different album than Born to Run. It's not the same stuff every album, and that's what I really appreciate about it. And they love it. They do it out of passion, not to cash a check. You can tell. You can tell when a band's just out there cashing a check. Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band still clearly love being together, playing together. It's like a whole family. Like You can feel that watching them perform and listening to them. Um, but a lot of bands that have been around too long don't have that feeling. They're not my crutch. <laughs> you know, I, I think these are great examples of the counterpoint of, of the ones that made it work, but also the, the in their defense is normally why they would make this bad decision. And I, I think an aspect of that is I might do it. <laughs> like you, you've got thousands of fans cheering for you every show you do. They want, I mean, look, obviously we're performers. We, we want to create new material all the time. Comedians can do that. In fact, if you're doing your stuff from your last set, they're kind of disappointed to see it. But so there, there is a lot more chance for evolution here. But also, if you're going up on stage and you keep being told, yeah, we're going to give you a million dollars to have thousands of people cheer your name. I get wanting to stick around, whether or not it's the right thing to do. There's a lot of appeal to that, especially when that is all you've known since a lot of these guys got huge. When oh, they yeah. Were, you know, oh, sure. Don't get me wrong. Old. I don't no. blame them for doing it for a second. And I would do the same thing. Yeah. I mean. Just any performer, you're gonna do. You're, yeah, that's you what perform you do. until you're forced. Yeah, to we're stop. not saying yeah. for any of these guys to stop. We're just saying at some point the mystique was lost. But as fans, it's gotten worse and worse for us. Yeah, on like this I end. actually <laughs> wanted to treat my right. uh, my mom and my mother-in-law to see the Stones when they were two years ago because they actually my mom my my mother-in-law got to see them like 40 years ago and my mom never did. And they both love the Stones, but bleeders were like two thousand dollars a ticket. Like who does who's that for? Like yeah. I, I don't know. At that point, there's no mystique when you're paying <laughs> when you're paying a mortgage payment to go for one fucking ticket to see the Stones. That's no mystique anymore. That's not interesting. That is sellout. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that covers the full range, too, that what we've loved about this was obviously 
Vulture of Bone Flutes. Right. That's the big takeaway for me. But along with that, the, the music we grew up with, the, the bands that we have loved our entire lives, if not their entire lives, uh, which has made it so hard to hold on. And where it went so wrong was the bands that just kept going uh, and has made it so hard to love it. And I get it. You haven't ruined your old songs, but you want to be able to just picture that one thing and that's gone. <coughs> Pearl Jam. <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> that is a big one. And thankfully, though, there have been those that have managed to pull it out. And I think the ones that have survived it have either gone a completely new direction or have either way it's the ones that have stayed true to themselves they've created the sound that was theirs so you just bought it every time and that was a fantastic thing to see yeah that's fair but i think that covers just about everything i mean i that was so much fun to discuss uh i love these episodes because i get to learn so much because i don't know how to research pop culture i can research history so well but pop culture it's like okay cool all you really have to do is spend 20 years <laughs> growing up with it and i don't talk know how to, to do talk that talk to the three of us <laughs> and, and yeah because actually michael is uh michael and i would do trivia together when you could go out in the world and he was our music guy for trivia and uh so i, I was really happy to have him on this and i, I want to thank michael Lee and black too who i have been uh, a fan of since well before I got into comedy, I know Wen has, has felt the same. This was an absolute pleasure for us. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm a nostalgia act at this point, and I'm <laughs> fine with it. I'm fine That's with not it. true. First day of camp and 10 years later, they were all in unison with each other. They were evolutions of the thing we loved. Catch me at the Pennsylvania State Fair this summer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be Michael Lee Black and Winger. I, I do want to point out, though, the... Uh, <laughs> I've of course of course heard all of your albums uh, multiple times and that was something cool we got to see there too is that the the growth of a person gets to come out uh, in the performance and that was an absolutely wonderful thing to see as you became a father and I, I know that's uh, apparent in your in your new book too and uh, that is something I love about getting to see comedy live too is that you get to feel like you're growing uh, with the performer that you love so much so thank you so much for being here uh, Michael thank you for coming on as well. When, as always, an absolute pleasure, guys. If you enjoyed this, uh, please give it five stars. Subscribe. It helps us out so much. We will be back next week. We'll hope, we hope you'll join us. And when, I'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Happy holidays. <laughs>